0: Let's, uh, let's pray together. Ask God for grace and wisdom and both to understand and then to walk in light of all that we hear. Father, thank you for this time and for the life that you've given to us, Lord. We're mindful that because of your faithfulness, we are alive, that you are giving us breath even as we, even as we breathe right now, Lord. Uh, you are giving us the life that we have. We thank you for that. And, Lord, we are mindful that um, days have been appointed to us. They're known to you before one came to be. We're walking in and living in those days now. And so, Father, open our minds that the days might be well used, that we might be faithful, that we might um, finish our course well, such that when we see you, you'll say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Father, give us an undivided heart that we may fear your name, that our service would flow from that. I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. You know, there are many people in life that have served us. I think about, uh, I was trying to figure out, what do I benefit from, or what have we benefited from uh, that have been invented or discovered from people that we don't even know? I think about, uh, so I was trying to... Google and trying to figure some things out, I remembered plasma i don 't know why it came to my mind, but this idea of in, in the early 20th century you had if you were going to have an operation, you had to have blood that was exactly the type that you had, and it was very difficult, particularly in battle and war, when you couldn 't just secure the type of blood that you needed so this invention of plasma, this idea of of this blood that was able to be used that could be stored, and it could be used for people of various types. It was a huge invention. It transformed surgery, made it much more uh, successful, particularly on the battlefield. Or I thought of things like um, penicillin. You know, We loved penicillin when the kids were young and they were sick all the time. Penicillin was great. It was very, very good to help the kids. Invented in 1928, the guy's name is I know you know, but I'm going to tell you anyways. Alexander Fleming. We didn't these guys Charles Drew invented plasma. This idea of breaking the blood down that it could be used across different types. I mean, these are people that have served us that we've long forgotten. We don't even know them. How many other? How many other things do you benefit from people that have served you that you have no idea? You just have it, you enjoy it, but you don't even know who invented it? Who discovered it? Well, the great thing about our text today is there is a, a strong word of encouragement for us that God will never forget his servants. God will never forget those who fear him and serve him. I mean, We may feel that way. I think some of us, when we are serving God, we really wonder, is it worth it? I, I mean, those, who, those of you who are struggling to overcome sin in your life, And and you slip and you fall and you slip and you fall. You just wonder, is it really worth it? I mean, you kind of want to just throw in the towel and say, this Christianity thing isn't really working for me. I'm putting all this effort in, and I don't seem to get these measurable results according to the effort I'm putting in. And we kind of want to throw in the towel. and, And God is going to have a dispute with us. In fact, he's disputing with the people of Israel because they are considering that serving him is really not worthwhile. It doesn't have the value that we originally thought it had. And and so God's going to try to, He's going to dispute with us and say, I don't forget my servants. Those things that my servants do, I don't forget them. You will be richly blessed. You'll be very thankful. He's really trying to draw us back to Himself that we might walk in faith, that we might be faithful in all of our discharging of faith. So turn with me, if you will, uh, to Malachi chapter 3, and we're going to read 13 uh, to 18. 13 to 18, Malachi chapter 3. This is God speaking. He says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Well, you have said it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge? or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Okay, there's a major shift right there. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. This is really, I I was going to go into chapter 4, and chapter 4, if you read ahead, is, is a really, it's going to be a very strong, hard passage on, on judgment. And I just wanted to stop in 18 and just try to encourage us in the faithfulness and the goodness of God calling us to serve Him well. So you kind of see that the servant who's going to be faithful, the first thing I want you to understand, the servant who's going to be faithful has to understand that ministry doesn't always produce results as we may expect them, uh, both in kind and in time. So sometimes you're going to be serving in life. And it just won't produce results like you may want. And I'm just asking you just to be patient. Because the people that God's disputing with weren't not being patient. In fact, they were speaking some hard, or the word means strong, or arrogant words against God. Now, remember in chapter 2, God says, you're wearying me with your words? Well, now in chapter 3, he's saying, they're hard against me. I mean, God's, God's bringing to bear on these people their complaint That serving God was useless. They were getting disgruntled with service. They didn't want to serve God anymore. They didn't want to follow God anymore. And he brings up their words. You know, whether they said them or thought them, it, it doesn't matter. God knows all things. And so he says, He says this You have said it is vain to serve God. In other words, it's useless, it's futile, it doesn't bear the fruit that we had hoped. And so they're saying it's not worth it anymore to serve. But then he goes on. He, and he continues to show with their hard words. He says it's vain if you follow. It says what's the profit of our keeping his charge? To keep his charge means to follow him in obedience. You know, it's like you and I trying to walk out in holiness. We see the scriptures. We're trying to walk in light of those scriptures. And they're saying, you know what? It's what what profit is it? I mean, there's no real profit for me to pursue holiness. Or, or notice, the next thing they say, what's the profit of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? That walking in and mourning has the idea of walking in repentance. In other words, they're saying, what profit is there for me to pursue repentance, to practice repentance, to grieve over my sin, you know, to try to move towards holiness? What's the profit in there? So these people are really complaining. I, I want you to understand, though, the way the scriptures are written here, they're not seeking grace from God to understand these things. What they're doing is they're complaining to each other. They're grumbling to each other, saying, what's the profit? What's the gain? In other words, what's the bottom line? Where's my cut? I'm not distinguished from anybody else. My, I have neighbors on both sides of me. They're great neighbors. They're not Christian. and They look the same as me, I imagine. There's no real distinction between us, at least from the outside. And they're saying, well, what's the profit? I'm not getting anything. There's no material gain. Where's my cut, God, is what they're saying. Now You can see this because of what follows. They say the arrogant are blessed. In other words, these arrogant, these people who don't regard God, who don't submit to God, who don't follow God, who don't fear God, who don't serve God, they're doing just fine. And the evildoer, the one that's really acting out evil, he's going so far, the scripture says that he's testing God, his crops aren't failing, his kids are strong, they're healthy. I mean, there's no difference. And this leads to great disgruntlement for the people of God. It reminds us of Psalm 73. If you remember, the psalmist struggled with the same thing. He, yes. says, he says these words, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pains until death. In other words, their lives are untouched by sickness and suffering. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's a good thing in this context. (laughs) They set their mouths against the heavens. In other words, they're just not railing against other people. They're railing against God. And their tongue struts through the earth. I mean, they are just saying anything they want. And they're doing all right. And it caused the psalmist here to really struggle. God, what's the deal? So, So... so there's a, there's a word here for us of this. Of, remember now, he's not talking about the God-hater. He's not, talking about the, he's not talking about those people, the pagan outside the community of faith. He's talking to the people of faith. There were those who were serving God. There were those who were not. And those serving God were getting disgruntled. I want, and I just wonder if you're not facing this in some way. I know that I do. I do. I mean, sometimes you serve God and you don't see these measurable results. You work at giving generously, and yet your financial situation is still struggling. You, you really try to pursue holiness, and yet your lives are still marked by some degree of struggle. You know, you're trying to be a distinguished servant of God, and yet your marriages are still a struggle, your finances are still a struggle, your children are still disobedient, and you're wondering, God, whose side are you on? There is a sense of discouragement that can come to all of us in terms of serving, particularly when the things don't start turning. You know, It's that sense in our minds where we think, well, God, I'm doing this for you, and I don't see anything coming back around, and we get discouraged. And it's led many of us actually to get out of ministry. I'm not going to serve anymore. You may have said that. You just throw in the towel. I'm not going to be doing this anymore. If that's the way they're going to treat me, or if this is the way God's not going to give back to me, I'm getting out of it. I'm tired. People aren't appreciating me. They don't recognize the work I do. And and they step away. And they they move away from being a faithful servant. Do you realize that every month, and this isn't just for the people of God, the leaders of the people of God, every month 1,500 ministers Step out of the pulpit and get out of ministry. They said, Sayonara. I mean, I'd rather be picking up trash cans. They just step, that's 18,000 a year. That's close to a transition of 6% of our churches per year. And that when a survey was done of ministers asking what percentage are weary in the work, 85% said we're weary. Where we are in the work. Now, there is a weariness that is just to do with the nature of ministry. But a lot of people are weary just because they expect things to be different. And I want to encourage you, I want to encourage myself that the servant of God who's faithful, the servant who won't be forgotten, is the one that recognizes we don't get a final report card in this life. You don't, you don't get to see all the fruit in this life. The servant of God knows that, incre- that change is incremental. It's laborious, and it's over the years. So in your ministries, in your service, and you're walking out your fear of God, that it is often many, many years before you see the fruit that is going to be coming from the faithful labor that you engage in. We are people that look at the end, We're just not looking for a quarterly report as to how it goes. Much of what you do is going to produce something you may never see it. You will one day, as we're going to talk about. But you may not see it now. So we want to fight discouragement. We want to fight that disillusionment over God. It should be different. You know, I remember ministering to one guy overseas for a good year and a half, seeing him move forward in the faith. He was coming from uh, a Muslim background and. Moved into Christianity, discipling him. And then, about three months before he left, he just filtered back into the Muslim community. Very discouraging, very, 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 very um, troubling. God, what happened? There was some real wrestling that I had going on with God. But I just want you to—I want you to be encouraged that, that that incremental, faithful nature of serving God, because He's worth it, is going to produce a great reward. I, I had this Aunt Catherine. Never actually, I think I met her once, Um, but she was on my dad's side and up and over to the right, a few generations away. But but I was a kid when she died, and so they cleaned her house out, and they found all these bonds, these different bonds of company. She had them stuffed in drawers and desks and just in random places. And uh, of course, when they were getting her estate cleared, they took all these things and had them valued. Well, if I remember right, the value was in the six figures. It was over $100,000. She didn't know that they were valuable. I, I mean, they were just there. All along, she, I imagine that periodically she looked at it, but she was just, I don't know, shes probably 100 years old, so she had had them for years and years, and she didn't see the accumulated weight that they were gaining. She didn't know their mature value. They were there. She knew them. Well, I'm not sure how much. You know, it was hard to see, but over the collective years, they came to maturity, and it was a large sum of money. I want to encourage us. It often seems like ministry and serving has questionable value. Be patient. God is faithful, honors the work of his servants. Be patient. I love talking to ministers that have been in the faith and leading churches for 30 and 40 years. They always have stories. But it took them years to see some of the fruit. They sowed the seeds years before, but it was 10, 15, 20, 30 years where God says, yeah, they came back around and repented of that sin. I mean, that's encouraging. That's encouraging. So so the first thing, if we're going to be faithful servants, if we're going to be servants who are not forgotten, recognize we don't get that Report card every quarter as to how it's going. Be faithful. Continue on. Secondly, if we're going to be found faithful, that we want to grow in the fear of God, look with me at verse 16. He says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Now that's to arrest our attention here. What does that mean? Well, it seems like there's some revival going on of sorts, that the preaching of Malachi was having an effect, that people were turning to God in fear. Now, what does it mean that they feared God? Well, to fear God, now you almost have to push aside your previous understandings of fear. We so quickly associate with fear with fright or being afraid. And and fear is much bigger than that. Fear does include that, but fear is a reverence. It's a respect. Fear is, 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 like we like to think of God as a God of love, and God is a God that loves, but fear is, takes in love. Fear is this idea that we begin to recognize God for who he is, and our lives begin to change in light of it. So fear is this absolute aware, this awareness of his absolute glory, and we begin to move in total allegiance to him because we now recognize who he is. I, I, the fear of God makes us tremble that we don't want to offend him, not because he's going to smack us with reprisal, but because we know how good he is and how kind he is. You know how it is when you hurt someone that you love? You, you don't want to do that. It's not that you're afraid they're going to, They're going to give you the freeze play. You just love them. You don't want to hurt them. And so this fear of God is a recognition of his glory that gives birth to a life that is lived in response to him. So these people began to move in fear of God. Now, this fear gave way, of course, to esteem. It says, That those who feared and esteemed his name, the word to esteem means to think upon, to meditate, to consider. That we honor God in the way we think of him. If you have wrong thoughts of God, you cannot honor him. That's why it's so important to gain a growing knowledge of God. We honor him in the way we think about him. And esteeming him is thinking on his sovereign mercy to us, his long suffering, his care, his power his judgment and his salvation i mean when you esteem him you are you're beholding him you're growing in his attributes becoming aware of them and so as you fear and esteem him which they were doing then it just gives birth to serving in other words if you esteem him esteem him if you fear him and you understand him then it only makes sense to serve him you always see. In fact, Ray uh, opened the service with a, a great scripture in First Samuel twelve twenty four. He says, "Only fear the Lord and serve Him. Fear and service always go hand in hand. It's like attitude and action. It's like deed and doctrine. It's like uh, belief and behavior." Same thing in um, Joshua twenty four. Now, fear the Lord and serve Him. In Deuteronomy ten twenty, it says the same thing: fear the Lord and serve Him only. So, so if we're going to be faithful servants. We want to grow in this fear of God. Now, now how do we do that? Well, I I often go outside and pray, and and, and I think about the. I I just begin with creation, for example. Think about the power of creation. And I think about the expansiveness of God. So so let me just remind you of something you probably already know. know, Just the Milky Way, our our neighborhood, let's say. It's a big place. So the speed of light is 186,000 miles per Second, So in one second, you go 186,000 miles. For example, the sun's 92 million miles away. So it's about a 16-minute round trip at the speed of light. This is up to the sun and back. Okay, now the Milky Way, just our neighborhood, if you were going 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 100,000 years to just get from end to end just to the milky way that's not in diameter that's not the other galaxies that are just con- constantly expanding 100,000 years traveling at close to 200,000 miles per second it's incredible and then you have billions of galaxies they estimate I mean, I mean, the expansiveness displaying God's power is profound. But then boil it down microscopically that every one of you has a DNA code that is unique and different to the other. I, I mean, this, this code of who you are biologically is, is at this microscopic level held in this tension with this God who has created this cosmic reality that's beyond our tracing out. I mean, this is the nature of God. I think about the nature of God. When I want to, when I want to consider the fear of God, I, I think about his judgment, the flood in Genesis. I mean, God's holiness will not be tampered with, and he wipes out a world, wipes them out. It, it causes one to fear. I think about the cross, as Helen gave beautiful words to, the nature of Calvary that God would pour that judgment out upon his son that we might be forgiven. I mean, don't just look at the cross as a little love statement. I mean, you can look at it as the judgment of God, full wrath and fury on the son who suffered for our sins so that we might receive mercy. I mean, that is fearful. Sometimes an act of love like that is frightening. It is fear-producing. So if we're going to be a faithful servant, we have to have a right understanding of God. We have to fear him. And fear doesn't displace love, it includes it. Now, how do, we don't develop this fear in a vacuum. You notice what it says in verse 16. It says, those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. Uh, the, there's this idea, you know, we live in a culture that says, you know, d- just deny fear. I used to have a hat, no fear. I was scared all the time, but I had this hat, no fear. <laughs> So, everything's being told, don't fear, don't fear. The reality of it is, we are to fear. And we need to fear, and it comes in the context of community. We need one another to increase and grow and develop that fear. I I think, fundamentally, it comes through the preaching of the Word. You know, I think about in in Psalm 3411, the psalmist says, Come, children, and I will teach you the fear of God. That when you guys hear, week after week, of the grandeur and the glory and the power of God, you're being reminded to be drawn towards repentance for your slothfulness and your indulgences to yourself and your distaste for people, your distaste for ministry. Perhaps your anger at God. You're being challenged by biblical truth that you might return, repent to God. That's why week after week we hear the word. That's why this church dedicates the bulk of the service just to the breaking of the word so that there's that constant development of fear in you for God but it's not just through the preaching of the word, it's also speak to one another, that you guys are supposed to be engaging one another. We have prayerfully sought God that we might grow as a culture in these redemptive conversations, that you are conversing with one another over issues of substance, particularly issues of God, and and, and helping one another grow in the fear of God. We Of course, we have the... In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. A lot of the development of fear of God comes from you intersecting each other's life. Folks, if you are bathing in the world, which we do just by the nature of life, it's hard to keep a sharp point on your fear of God. Everything seeks to dull it, and so you need one another. So, so do you fear God? And what is the evidence of your fear? In other words, ask yourself, to what degree do I fear God? You know, is your fear of God displacing other fears? Does your fear of God displace your fear of man? Many of you fear men. I fear men. It's a struggle. I want a large God, so I don't need to fear men. To fear men means to consider their opinions to be altering to my happiness. To fear men is to consider their acceptance of me to be so needed that I will change the course of my life to satisfy them. I'm orienting my life around what people think about me. We all struggle with that. But when you have a growing fear of God, that just begins to decrease. Fear of finances, fear of financial security. If God can create a universe that's 100,000 light years apart from end to end, just of the neighborhood do we really need to fear that he's unable to care for us? It seems to me then that the feeding of the 5,000 was like child's play. I mean, it's no big deal. A little bit of bread, a few fish, and we fed 5,000, 15,000 people if it was 5,000 men. Or, or the fear of life. Many of you fear life. I mean, you fear your kids. Are they going to go to right college, and are they going to right education? You, you fear your own life, cancer, terrorism. But the fear of God begins to displace that. It doesn't mean that there aren't legitimate things to move around, but those don't become defining for me in terms of the way I live my life. So these fears begin to dissipate when you begin to grow in your fear of God. And that I think what the cross does, the cross is that, that great light for us to look and say, We have nothing to fear. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Folks, this is what keeps a servant faithful. This is what keeps you and I moving forward. A growing fear, a growing awareness of God. It has to be cultivated. It won't come by you just saying, I'm a Christian. Okay, the third encouragement to be faithful, to be found faithful, the third encouragement to be a servant not forgotten is found in the second half of 16 through 18. These are glorious promises, and I pray they're going to encourage you. He says in 16, those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. We've talked about that. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him. Of those who feared the Lord and esteemed him. Now listen to what he's saying. He's saying that, those servants who fear God and are serving him, that he pays attention. It's kind of like, you know, when the dog's ear goes up. You haven't heard anything, but the dog's heard something because his ears are so sharp that God pays attention. Even the word to hear implies bending over, that God's bending over to hear what you have to say. He's saying here that for those who fear him, God hears you. He pays attention to you. To everything you say, the deeds done, the ministries exercised, the sacrifices made, he sees them all and he writes them in a book of remembrance. This isn't the book of life that you see in other scriptures. This is the book of remembrance. God is recording, he's writing down every single thing you have done in service for his name. It's kind of analogous. If you remember the story in Esther, you know, in the uh, Persian monarchy, they would keep, Books of history, things that were done. If you remember the story of Esther, the king couldn't sleep. And, of course, he pulls out one of these books, and he reads about how Mordecai, that was her uncle, had, had exposed an attempt to overthrow the king. And he says, what's been done for this man? And God uses that event, actually, to providentially uh, continue Israel's existence until the Son of Man comes. But, but that's the kind of the book that God's writing in. God doesn't write it down because he's afraid he might forget, like I have post-it notes all over my office. God writes it down to encourage us. Folks, whether what you do is seen or not seen, whether it's big or whether it's small, it can be folding chairs, it can be cutting the bushes, it can be driving Corinne to a dentist appointment, it, it can be eldering, it can be preaching, it can be making a meal. Those things, Jesus says, even a cup of cold water won't be forgotten. I want to encourage you towards being faithful in ministry. Everything is written down. Not one thing will be missed by God. You think, well, nobody noticed. Oh, yeah, God noticed. Well, nobody said anything about it. Well, when he says it, it will be better than if someone else said it. Not one thing is missed. That's a promise he gives us, to be faithful. But not only that, look what he says He says, and they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my treasured possession. What God's saying here is he's using the language of adoption. They weren't mine, now they're mine. That those faithful servants, they will be mine. They'll be my treasured possession. Using the language of Exodus 19, where God sovereignly draws together a people to himself. They're my possession. I mean, that's what God is saying about his faithful servants. They'll never be forgotten. They're going to be his possession. Notice what he says following, though. He says, and I will spare them as a son, excuse me, as a father spares a son. That he will spare us of our sins. He will spare us of the things that we've done wrong. He will forgive us. Now, as a father spares a son who serves. That's kind of interesting. Why is that there? I mean, why does he say that? He will spare them as a man spares the son who serves them. Is our service the condition that we meet to be spared? I don't think so. I think that the service is an indication that we have become his. It's the result. It's the natural fruit born out of the life of one who has been spared. But that service is indicating our sonship. If you are serving and if you're ministering, and you're doing it out of fear, and for the glory of God, rejoice. That's evidence that you're a son or a daughter of God. Now, if you want to claim to be a son or daughter of God, and you have no ministry, you have no desire to serve, you have no fear of God, then you're making a false claim, or you have no evidence to back it up, at least. But the one who fears God, who's laboring faithfully, in service, in ministry, being faithful, the promise is, you're mine, you'll be made my possession, and I will spare you. But then thirdly, and look at this in 18, it's, a, it's another blessing, another promise. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Again, we have this language of distinction. The people were frustrated. God, I'm I'm. I was going to use a euphemism, a kind of vernacular, but I think I'll... I remember I did that last time a few weeks ago. I am really working hard, and I don't see anything. It doesn't appear like you care for me any more than you do for the pagan across the street. And he's saying, oh, there'll be a day. There'll be a day when a distinction is made, the righteous and the wicked. The one who serves, note the parallelism, right? So the righteous is the one who serves. The wicked is the one who does not serve. You see it right in 18. That that service is demonstrating you've been made righteous. That 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 service is demonstrating you are among the righteous. That distinction will come in the day. Now now listen, um, we are people who are waiting. So if we're going to be faithful in service, then we know that oftentimes the fruit from ministry doesn't justify The expense of ministry. We know that. If we're going to be faithful in ministry, we know that we've got to grow in our fear of God. That the fear of God has to displace the other things in our life. And that if we're going to be faithful in ministry, we know that the distinction. That day when we're going to be separated will come on the last day. You see this clearly in Matthew 25. Remember, Jesus comes and he teaches that parable and the sheep and the goats are separated. And what does he separate them on? Do you remember, he doesn't separate them on their doctrine. He separates them on, when I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was in prison, did you visit me? When I was sick, did you care for me? In other words, those acts of service are displaying the righteous ones. Those acts of service are what identify the separation between the sheep who enjoyed Christ forever and the goats who are taken out of his presence. So we are to be a people. We need to recalibrate our valuation of ministry. We have to recalibrate not needing the report card right now. We're called to labor faithfully, knowing that there'll come a day, and on that day, all will be made right, that our sonship is actually evidenced by patience waiting for God to bring about a reconciliation of all these events. So I'm simply calling you to labor faithfully as Christians. And and that faithful laboring is recognizing that many of you are going to minister and you will not see an immediate return. But be patient. I'm calling you that those who are ministering faithfully that won't be forgotten, that it's going to come as you grow in the fear of God and as you look forward to these promises in 16, 17, and 18. Now when I look at this and then I look at my own ministry, I, I have shortcomings all over the place. But I am encouraged that when I think about Jesus as the New Testament Christian, that, that he was a faithful servant. When you, okay, let's look at Jesus in, uh, in respect to this text. So I'm saying that ministry will often have little, immediate, measurable results. Well, look at Christ. Uh, he's rejected by his people, he's deserted by all of his followers, and even forsaken from the Father. And yet he presses on faithfully. The, the second point in the sermon this idea of growing in fear of God. You know Christ had a deep fear of God. The, the fear of God, the reverence for God, was his motivation. He would rather glorify God and serve God than even save himself. I mean, that's seen perfectly in the cross. He didn't fear man, he didn't fear death. It says in Luke, I love it when it says he resolutely set his heart towards Jerusalem. In other words, he's moving to his own death because it honored the Father. I see Christ, this last point in the sermon about, How we're to look forward to the results, look forward to the rewards. Jesus clearly had the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. So in Jesus Christ, we see him as the perfect faithful servant. Now, I don't hold Jesus up as an example that I want you to follow. I hold Jesus up as a king that I want you to believe in. And that by faith in Christ, you are made in union with him. And here's God's promise for us to be faithful servants. In union with Christ, God gives us the Spirit. And the Spirit of God fills us so that we now can begin to look like Christ and walk in these righteous deeds. That through the power of the Spirit, you are able to be found faithful. You are able to finish well. You're able to walk in a manner of his grace, such that when he sees you, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what we're going for. That's what we're hoping for. And and especially in light of chapter 4, because in chapter 4, he begins with simply this. The day is coming for the wicked and the furnace and the righteous will leap like calves. It's permanently and eternally separating. This is a, a critical call for you to evidence your sonship. For those of you who have become discouraged, you've thrown in the towel, you don't want to minister, you've done that thing, I served five years, I did my thing, and now I'm finished. Please repent. Repent of that attitude. And those of you who think I've, I've done my charge or people aren't thanking me and I'm not getting the respect I deserve, just repent of that. Think on Christ. And and for those of you, and repent and seek God's face for how you can serve and how you can minister and how you can begin to walk faithfully so that at the end of your life, you're not nobody at the end of their life is glad that they have more money. Nobody, this is amazing. So I'm reading the paper this morning. Just Andy Williams, half of you don't know him, Uh, the other half probably are embarrassed to say you do. He was a singer, he's an entertainer, he's 83 years old. And he has bladder cancer. It's, it's announced. And uh, 83, but he was a, a world-famous entertainer for years, 50s and 60s and 70s in particular. And so he says this, I have cancer the bladder. Now, these are his words. But that's no longer a death sentence. People with cancer are getting through this thing. They're kicking it, and they're winning more and more every year, and I'm going to be one of them. You're 83, man. <laughs> How long are you going to kick it? I I don't even get it. I I just want to say, you're 83 years old. Now, nobody is just ready to say, okay, great, I can die at 84. But, But that getting ready to see God, that preparing of our soul to have him say, well done, my good and faithful servant, that ought to be a draw for us. Folks, the older we get, the more we want to see him, the more we want to hear him, the more we want to enjoy him. That the clinging to life that takes place at 15 and 20 and 25 and 30, that our hands are letting go as we're hitting 50 and 55 and 60 and on. So, folks, we want to finish well. We want to be faithful. God promises he won't forget us as we walk in faithfulness. Not one thing. So let's pray and thank him for this. And I want to pray for you as, uh, as we're about to come to the table. Father, thank you for your word that both warns and encourages us. Father, I pray specifically for those who have kind of chucked ministry and service, and they're done with it. They've put in their time. They've suffered. Let somebody else do it. Father, grant them repentance. Grant them the hunger to have a longing that... That being yours in your possession and being spared as sons, just as a father spares a son who serves, uh, encourage them in greater service such that at the end they'll be thankful and happy. And Father, for those who are laboring faithfully and are struggling with discouragement, they're in the church, but their religion has become more formalized. Father, I pray that you would stir up their soul to see the glory and the joy that there is in serving you. That you are so worthy to be feared and served and loved. Father, encourage them forward. And for those that are serving diligently and are loving it, thank you, Father, for that. Thank you for the joy that they have. May it increase that you would be honored in their joy-filled service. Father, lead us to be a people that find the suffering servant, Jesus, to be more than an example. But that, and but that, in our service we would display Him. We would display the beauty of His service as we willingly sacrifice for one another. Father, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.